What if it rained food? What if Earth was a cube? What if we had nine lives? What if bits could fly? It's absurd. If money grew on trees, if we didn't have knees, if we walked through life slightly magnetical, it's absurd. Absurd hypotheticals. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Absurd Hypotheticals, the show where we overthink dumb questions so you don't have to. I'm your host, Marcus Lehner, and I'm joined here today by Chris Yee and Ben Storms. Say hi, guys. Hey, I'm Chris. Hey, I'm Ben. So, the world has been ravaged by by bats because of all the stuff that's going on. So we decide we're going to do a bat question. Is that question true? is, that's not why we decide to do a bat question. <laughs> <laughs> man, if you call your shot, though, because we record this ahead of time, if the world is ravaged by bats, man, you're going to sound... <laughs> Well, I mean, you'll sound in t- you know in touch with the times, but we'll think you sound smart. Ben, technically, uh, I just so we're on the same page here. The world's ravaged by bats, and that the coronavirus originated in a bat. I mean, I got, I got what he meant, but I also get what <laughs> Ben means. <laughs> like, I wouldn't say the world. Okay, okay, if there's anyway, a bat plague, being, I will see very precognizant. If there's a bat plague, also, yes. just of, of actual bats, or if a Batman movie is announced, uh, that too. Do you think that? Do you think that's likely? Bat, another Batman movie? I think they're done with him. I mean, Wait, they, like, they are already <laughs> making one. They already announced yeah. one. <laughs> yeah, Robert Pattinson's great Batman. I'm actually quite excited for that. Yeah, it looks actually pretty good, or it sounds good. Yeah. Have more people been Batman or Doctor Who? We're off. Ta- we're off topic here. We got to talk about actual bats. <laughs> I think it's barely Doctor Who, but you know it doesn't matter. Okay. <laughs> All right, Ben. I'll let you start off. Our question for this week is: What if you could perfectly train bats? Yeah, so so we've done a few of these questions where we you know just take an animal and figure out what you could do with them. You can train them, and I feel like the first thing that comes to mind when you think about what can bats do that could be useful is echolocation. So sort of just as a quick quick thing, what is echolocation? How does it work? Echolocation is basically it is it is figuring out where things are via sound. So easy way to think about it: imagine going to like a, a really wide canyon and yelling into it and getting an echo back. So what's happening there is you yell, some time passes, and then the sound waves from your yell come back after bouncing off that back wall across from you. And what's cool is that you can actually, if you time the amount of time between when you yell and when you hear your yell come back, you can actually calculate um, the distance from where you're standing to that far wall by just taking that time and using the speed of sound to... Uh, you know, calculate that that distance, right? If you if you actually yelled into a canyon, what would you yell? Hi, canyon. How's it go? How's it going? You're, you're probably lonely. Do you feel empty inside? Well, then the canyon would say the same thing back to you, and it'd call you lonely. Maybe I do feel lonely. That's why I'm yelling Maybe in a canyon. Maybe the man yelling he's lonely into a canyon <laughs> is the lonely one after all. I just wanted someone else to feel lonely too, so I didn't <laughs> feel so alone with my loneliness, Chris. Anyway. Continue. Um, so this is what bats do, but obviously on a, a different different scale. So so interesting thing, actually, is that I, I found out that, that bats, aside from humans, are actually the most vocal mammals. Apparently, they are just constantly making like chirps and clicks and songs and stuff like like birds do. Um, it's just that it's all ultrasonic and we can't hear it. But apparently, they're just all the time singing and chirping and clicking and stuff. As part of their echolocation or just for funsies? Because I would be a lot more vocal myself if I needed it to see. <laughs> well, so so 
they actually generally have pretty good vision. They just also use echolocation because they are are um, nocturnal hunters, and they used to be able to see the bugs they're hunting. Ah, so blind as a bat is actually a misnomer because bats have surprisingly good sight. Anyway, point being, um, I think that mostly they just do it to communicate with each other and stuff. But it's not it's not entirely echolocation, but some is obviously echolocation. But bat brains are built for echolocation so you know obviously if we're yelling into a canyon we can't tell that much from our yell we know that there's a wall there and that's about the extent of it but bats are actually able to distinguish um where an object is to the fine grain point of where they can actually tell when the sound which ear the sound reaches first their left or right ear and from that they can tell whether the object is to their left or their right their ears have different folds in them that sort of redirect and change the sound a little bit based on whether the sound is coming from below them or above them and that way they can tell whether an object is below them or above them they can tell how big it is so basically a smaller object is going to reflect less of that sound wave they send out uh, because of that the echo from it is going to be less intense than that from a larger object and they can use the doppler effect to actually tell what direction the object is moving so the doppler effect basically is is i know we've talked about it any number of times on this podcast but basically when you have a wave going towards an object that's moving in the same direction as the wave when it rebounds and comes back it's going to basically like if you have i guess if you have a sound wave going towards an object like, like a, a train when it rebounds and comes back it's going to look it's going to sound lower pitch for the train is moving away because the wavelength will increase and it's going to sound higher pitch where the train is going towards you because the wavelength will decrease. So they can use this to tell if the object is moving towards them or away from them. And their brains can do all of this, this processing unconsciously. It's not something they have to think about the way that, you know, I guess we don't have to think about it. But, you know, the same way that we can process visual information or audio information, they do the exact same thing with echolocation. And they actually can form almost an image in their head that is a surprisingly accurate vision quote unquote of these you know returning sound waves from the echolocation yeah i was just gonna make that same analogy because i'll just like it's like just sounds buck wild that you can do that just from from sound it's, and then i think about vision works yeah and it's like oh so the light bouncing you know light waves which are not that different from sound waves if you go really really into the physics right like we can see what rate and ratio and things are bouncing off and then two versions of that our brain can put it together into like a 3d image and just you know it works as fast as vision does yeah I was, I so was brains gonna, are cool evolution's cool sorry chris i was gonna bring up daredevil too but for some reason i was gonna specifically point out uh ben affleck's daredevil i don't know why <laughs> <laughs> for some reason i decided to think about that movie i don't know yeah. why has he been batman he has been batman. uh yeah he He's was the most he was recent batman, batman. And, yeah he was angry batman it was not great anyway so I was wondering, you know, sort of how, how far away can they use this echolocation from? Um, and there was a journal article from 2008 called Echolocating Bats Cry Out Loud to Detect Their Prey by Anne-Marie Serlicki and Elizabeth K.V. Kalko, um, which basically they just took a bunch of bats and did a bunch of testing to determine their echolocation range and the intensity and things like this. And the furthest detection range, they're looking at like like detecting insects and, and stuff, you know, the actual hunting detection range. The furthest one they found was Cormura, Bre oh no, Cormura Brevirostris, or as I'm going to call it forever from now, this point forward, the chestnut sack-winged bat. 
chestnut sack winged bat the chestnut sack winged bat it's also not a great thing to say but it's better than cormura breverostris i can tell you that sack winged bat i think they have sacks in their wings is kind of what i got from that name (laughs) i don't know point being i guess the important point here is that they had the furthest um, detection range from that location that they saw, which was 10 to 17 meters. And it's, theirs was, was a little further than others because they used like a lower pitch. So it just traveled farther. So we sort of know, okay, that's a, that's a decent range for echolocation. But then as I was sort of thinking through all of this, I know that bats go out and sort of hunt in like groups a lot of the time when they're flying around. And I always kind of wondered, is that a problem like with echolocation? You know, does all these different all these different bats with all their echolocation cries, are they going to like interfere with each other, right? And so I found another article from 2015 called uh, Calling Louder and Longer, How Bats Use Biosonar Under Severe Acoustic Interference from Other Bats by Aaron Amachai, Gadi Bloomrosen, and Yossi Yovel, which they had theorized that bats would, would modulate their, like the pitch of their calls to avoid this, right? That all the bats in the group would use a slightly different pitch just to sort of determine which which uh which call was theirs so they took bats and surrounded them with speakers and played just different echolocation calls that are recorded all around them i was really hoping to say like rammstein no <laughs> <laughs> yes they just blasted heavy metal um no but they just did a bunch of, of different uh, echolocation calls around it and what they found was that the bats never changed their their pitch or anything they never actually changed anything about the, their quote-unquote voice right um they would have higher intensity calls and do them for longer duration and call them more often to sort of get around the fact there was more noise around but they never changed their voice which means that as far as they can tell bats can actually recognize their own voice and then the same the same like head head researcher dr yovel he also had a paper in 2009 where they trained bats to crawl toward one side or another when they had two different bat calls on either side um, and the bats were able to do it. So bats can differentiate between different bat voices as well. So this all got me thinking if we can basically have bats have this directional call that they can recognize different bats voices as well. How can we use this? And really the only thing I could think of, I think isn't even that bad of an idea is basically replacing GPS. Maybe not entirely, because it's not going to work well in, like, a car, obviously. But let's take a place with a lot of, like, sort of wild country that also happens to be a climate that's similar to the areas in South America where those big bats that can echolocate from far away live. Florida. So take Florida, and let's make the Florida echo positioning system. So... We're going to say that, you know, that detection range we had was 10 to 17 meters. So we're going to say 15 meters just for, like, ease of use. That range was for the sound to go to something and back. But if we only care about going to something, we can go 30 meters. So the area of Florida is 170,300 square kilometers, um, which is basically a square that's 412,310 meters on each side. Which, if you take it in terms of bat areas, where each bat can go 30 meters, that is a 13,744 by 13,744 bat square. Which is about 189 million bats. If you have basically, across all of Florida, 30 by 30 squared for the bat at each corner. 
You know what they say about Florida? You're never more than 30 feet from a bat. <laughs> well, so I was trying to figure out if 100, because in my mind, 189 million bats is a lot of bats, right? Like, that feels like a large number of bats. So I was trying to find, like, the bat population, preferably of Florida. I thought that would be good. Or in general, just, like, the United States. I, I couldn't find any numbers for some reason. I kept finding, like, people saying they were tracking the populations of bats. But none of them ever said the number of bats in the population of bats. And I couldn't figure out why. I did, however, find out that in 1963, someone did a, like, I guess a, a, a bat census. I don't know. Of um, uh, this, <laughs> come this... on, Robert. It's time to do the bat census. <laughs> the bat census is Batman's least impressive gadget. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it was they. They basically counted the bats in this um, this cave in Arizona, and they they determined that there were thirty million Brazilian free-tailed bats in this one cave in Arizona back in 1963. And I found other historical records of millions of bats living in a single cave. So. I couldn't find, like, current bat numbers, but I know that, you know, we can fit 189 million bats in Florida, I guess is my point here. (laughs) It wouldn't be that hard. And the way I see it, what you do here is basically this is a system to help people who get lost out in, like, the Everglades or something, right? So you have one bat that is assigned to you that stays with you. And... You have this added bonus, by the way. Obviously, bats eat bugs, lots of bugs in Florida, slightly fewer bugs around you now. That's nice. But if something goes wrong and you need help, your bat just cries out. And now, whatever bats are in earshot can start redirecting cries towards whatever central location we have that's going to send out help to where you are. It It's not that bad of an idea. <laughs> like, I've had worse ideas on this podcast before. <laughs> You're the only one that can train bats, though. Not everyone can train bats. Are you going to be the sole bat trainer? And you're going to like... Yeah. Well, it's not that hard. There's a lot of bats to train. Well, yeah. Okay, well, that's true. But I mean, you're not training them. You're basically training them to stay around one place. That's most of the training. And just like, if you hear a cry, cry out towards whatever direction it needs to go, right? It's a pretty simple process. I guess once they're trained, they're trained. You don't have to retrain them. Right. So... I guess that's overall my idea is the Florida Echo Positioning System, which is, well, it's not practical, but it's more practical than I expected, which I'll I'll take it, I guess. <laughs> Probably the biggest problem is that it's not going to work during the daytime. Well, but I mean, people are more likely to get lost at night. I don't know. I'm grasping at straws here. <laughs> you just got to put two bats and train one to be non-nocturnal and want to be nocturnal i mean yeah actually i did think about that that you'd probably want to have bats and shifts so you probably need double the bats but i think you're still okay (laughs) anyway marcus what did you do yeah so there are a lot of bats and not just bats like as like you know the 30 million that case there's lots of types of bats one of the things that i found was crazy is that there's 1240 species species of bats to put in perspective there are only 5450 species of mammals so 23% of all mammal species are bats, which means if you look at all the different types of bats, you can put together the best crew to commit crimes. We've got to commit crimes when we train the animals. <laughs> what was the last crime we committed? I don't even remember. It was a while ago. Snakes? Snake crimes? Snakes? That was a long time ago. I, mean, I definitely robbed a bank with snakes. Crimes in general, non-animal related, would be the, the Louvre, right? Oh, uh, yeah, but that was a crime episode. Yeah. It was a whole episode of crime. Anywho, I made a crime. 
And kind of what inspired this crime was the, and I'm going to put them, I'm, I'm going to give each of my bats a, a fun nickname for their role. The Sticky Fingers <laughs> is going to be the Bumblebee Bat or the Kitty's Hognose Bat. This one is cool because it is actually, this bat is the smallest mammal of all of them. It is 1.1 inches long and weighs 2 grams. It's like the size of like a part, one segment of your finger is the size of this bat. And it's fracking adorable. That's, yeah, that's pretty adorable. Just imagining it in my head. Yeah, and also if you look online, they're very cute pictures. So if you need a good a little smile in, in this bat plague. It's pretty rare. <laughs> when, you, when you imagine a bat, you don't imagine adorable. I mean, bats really get a bad rap, though, because they are frequently very cute. There are some fugly bats, though. <laughs> well, okay. But I mean, but like a lot of them are pretty cute, right? Yeah, they're, they're, they can be cuddly. Yeah. The problem is they're just known for like shitting a lot and eating bugs. <laughs> I mean, the eating bugs, you're, okay, no, anyway, I'm not going to argue for bats anymore. They, they, get a, they have a bad rap. There are very, yeah. some very cute bats. But anyways, the bumblebee bat is the smallest bat. And what's perfect about the little bumblebee bat is that it's like the master infiltrator because it's so small and it can fly. It can just go wherever the hell it wants. So... The negative of a tiny, tiny bat is that it can't really carry much. So I went to look into how much could this small little bat carry. And there's obviously, there was no good pre-existing math for how much bats (laughs) carry, especially very tiny ones. But one fact I found a few places is that generally when bats go out hunting, they can eat up to their body weight in insects and still, you know, and still fly around. So at the very least, if they haven't eaten that day, they can carry their own body weight and still fly. Which is not a lot. Right. It is. They, they weigh two grams. So they do not have a lot of body weight. So um, I went to look at the most valuable materials by weight. And after ticking off the, you know, synthetic ones and the radioactive ones, surprisingly, <laughs> the most valuable one is diamonds. <laughs> Shock and aplomb. So the weight of diamonds is, mer- is measured in carrots. Um, each carat is about 0.2 grams. So the, say, the average diamond ring is about 1 to 1.2 carats. And so that's only 0.2 grams each for each little diamond. And our bat weighs 2 grams. So our average bumblebee bat can carry 9 carats worth. A 1 carat diamond is worth anywhere between 2500 bucks and $16,000, depending on all the other qualities of the diamond, like its sheen and how it's cut and all the other nonsense that they, they care about but nobody else does. Um, but even taking the minimum amount, like the worst versions of these carat diamonds, 2500 bucks per carat, a single bumblebee bat can carry $22,000 worth of diamonds. <laughs> that's wow. Okay. Good. So that's awesome. They can just go in there and grab all these diamonds. But of course... It's you need, you're gonna need a little bit of help. The first thing is that the di- the diamonds are gonna be you know usually in a locked case. So we're gonna need the next part of our crew, who I've nicknamed the lock pick, and that is going to be our friend the nectar bat. Uh, the nectar bat also holds a record among animals in that it, compared to its body size, it has the longest tongue. So basically, these these bats actually don't feed on insects; they feed on the as the name implies, nectar of flowers, and they, like, they're like the long, tuby flowers. So almost like a, uh, was it the hummingbirds that have the really long tongue, too, that like shoots out the proboscis and uh, goes into the flower and sucks that up. But just to, just to put this into scale, the nectar bat is 2.3 inches long. So not a, again, not a big bat, also good for infiltrating. The bat is 2.3 inches long, 
The tongue, when extended, is 3.4 inches long. Is it one of those weird ones that curls up on the inside? <laughs> no, actually. So the, the article I was reading was about the scientist who was like, I was wondering how their tongues were so long. So they had one and they, you know, they were had in the lab and they were testing, you know, they were looking at how long the tongue was by training it to suck out of a clear tube that was a flower. And so they have a nice side profile of the tongue extended and it was creepy. Um, <laughs> but basically this tongue... The base of the tongue is between the bat's heart and sternum. So imagine, like, your tongue would go down to, like, mid-chest level. Oh, no. And then all the way up to your mouth. And then when the tongue extends, it extends out to triple its original length. Uh, <laughs> I don't like that. I'm unhappy about this. So we, we've had arguments of this before about whether... Putting literally anything that's long and skinny into a lock would let you unlock the would let you pick the lock, but it is a pretty thin and narrow tongue, and I imagine they have some amount of control over it. You might be able to get the pins in the right spots to you know then unlock the lock. This is probably the biggest stretch in the plan. This nectar was that, bat was that but... a pun that the very long tongue is the biggest stretch in the plan? No, but I, it is now. <laughs> hey, we got there, and yes, it is a stretch, but continue. So then. So we have the lockpick, we have the sticky fingers. The next thing we're going to need, which I didn't think I was going to need until I was doing a little bit more research, is uh, we're going to need the muscle. Because it turns out most bats can't walk. So the way, like, bat wings have evolved, you know, the way that bats have evolved is that their legs have kind of become the bottom part of their wings. And so they basically spend their entire lives either hanging upside down or in flight. They effectively never go onto the ground and there's a couple reasons one they're they're trash at walking they can climb just fine they have like they'll have little you know pointy claws and fingers like so on the cave walls and tree bark they can climb no problem um but on the like on just flat ground they're no good and two bats can't actually take off from the ground the amount of energy to actually generate that first bit of lift is too much for how bats are built so really what happens is that the way bats you know initiate flight is they can sustain flight and they can you know gain altitude and however they need to get around but they actually need to drop a few feet to to gain any you know flight at all but you're good but the main point is is that they're not good at walking so really you're gonna need some bat in there that can walk to kind of just like open the panels and like you know just move shit around like just something to be on the flat wait so if a bat just accidentally falls onto the ground just because something happened then they're just dead they can't do anything about it so they so when they can't like when i say they can't walk they're like they're extra super trash at like they can crawl along the ground but they're like extra super bad at it right but they still need that height to get the flight so how do they get that height generally they would climb a tree they they can Uh, climb a tree bark with the with their claws and then go a few feet up the tree and then use that to to get up off the ground again Okay, but I'm gonna. Ha- I need something a little bit more maneuverable on the ground, and there are actually just two bat species that do this. One is the New Zealand short-tailed bat, um, which evolved to keep its legs because New Zealand is so isolated and free of bigger predators that they just never like they're just fine walking around. They don't have to worry about things eating them like bats everywhere else. And then the second one, which is the one I'm using, is the common vampire bat, who has evolved to walk on the ground because it wants to be extra stealthy. 
when it goes up to, as the name implies, livestock and then sucks their blood. So I didn't actually realize that the, the, the vampire bat literally is a blood-sucking bat. Like, it literally will go up to a cow or a horse or whatever, and then its nose is sensitive to heat, so it can find blood vessels, and then it just, like, bites it and then has, like, you know, its fancy tongue and non-coagulants and sucks the blood out of the out of the animal and just, like, totally gorges itself. It's kind of gross. It's pretty gross. I imagine they were called vampire bats before, like, the story vampires, right? Yeah, I figured it was... It was... Vampires were named after vampire bat. Oh well, hold on. Or was it the other way around? It's probably the other way around, right? Who knows? I don't know when the uh, when the vampire mythos was established and when the vampire bat was named. Probably, probably the bat was named after. You know, probably the scientific community got shit together to name bats after vampire mythos existed. So, vampire bats were first officially described in scientific literature in 1810, documented by Darwin in 1839. But it was the 1897 release of. Bram Stoker's Dracula that solidified a relationship between vampires and bats. But vampires existed in folklore before that. So vampires existed, but they didn't have anything to do with bats? I think so. Yeah, if you a lot of a lot of the uh the old folklore type creatures have totally different backstories. Like I know elves are crazy different, fairies are crazy different, leprechauns are crazy different, and usually a lot more, you know death deadly in the in the old folklore. usually they're punishing you ironically for doing anything that's not like raising crops and staying inside vampire bats were integrated into vampire folklore after they were discovered on the south american mainland in the 16th century so apparently there was a link starting then but like obviously vampires have been part of folklore for a lot longer than that interesting i would have thought it'd be the other way around but i guess not so this bat's this bat this bat's gonna be pretty good for walking around. It it can go pretty fast actually. It can it can like do like a little a a sprint. Um, it was described by the biologist studying it as four like front wheel drive for version of running <laughs> because like the top you know the obviously the four limbs are the stronger ones. Um, I also love that they basically tested the bat's ability to walk by just putting them on a treadmill and just increasing the pace until oh, they couldn't. That's so mean. <laughs> But yeah, so so we have our vampire bat is going to do all the like lifting things up and, you know, opening panels and whatever else little things it needs to do while they're kind of there for support. So now you have all these tiny little bats, all of our good old bumpy bats with all the diamonds. They've they've escaped out the ventilation shafts. And the last thing, the last category bat we're going to need, who I have I have nicknamed the getaway car, is we're going to use the Brazilian free-tailed bat. This bat's a bit bigger, a bit bigger than the bumblebee bat. Bumblebee bat again was two grams and one point one inches long. This one is twelve grams and three and a half inches long, but it does have a twelve to fourteen inch wingspan. So it is a bit bigger. It's not the biggest bat around, but there's a very specific reason that I want to use this one, and that is because the Brazilian free-tailed bat is the fastest animal when you look at horizontal flight, which basically makes it the fastest animal. The Brazilian free-tailed bat can fly at speeds of 100 miles an hour. What? 100 <laughs> miles an hour. <laughs> the fastest bird is the, the common swift, I think it is, can reach speeds of like 70. This is 30 miles an hour faster than that. Just, just to, to like reiterate for people in case they, they missed this point, this was like horizontal flight, not in a dive or something, but just like powered flight flying forwards. Yeah, like ground speed. The ground speed is 100 miles an hour. Like the the researchers doing this literally tested it 
assume that their instrumentation was broken, tried to follow the bats, and then when they realized they couldn't keep up with the bats, was like, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> whoa, that's fast. <laughs> so your, your Brazilian free-tail bat weighs 12 grams. Theoretically, could then carry 12 grams. So each of your Brazilian bats can carry six of your bumblebee bats. So you don't even need that many of these to, to kind of just clean out a good old diamond store. And the last part of it, I was worried that this was just like, oh, this is, you know, it's burst speed. Like it sprints like this for, you know, 20 feet and then it's tired and then like, you know, collapses. So I was kind of looking to see if I could get the range on the free-tailed bat. How big of a range do you think it is? And, and by the, the range I found was how far out from their cave they'll go searching for food in a night. 250 miles. <laughs> um, less than that. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I'll say 10 miles. These bats will go distances of 150 miles from their cave in a night and back just to hunt. So if you are, say, a police officer <laughs> and you see, and you're, I guess, watching, maybe this is the third, maybe this is the third one so that you've, you've seen the bats, you're ready for them, you see the bats, and you're like, I'm going to follow these bats and, and, you know, catch this criminal. Bat zips away. And now you're like, well, I'm just going to find the person in town who has a lot of bats. How big, how big is your search radius going to be? It's not, you're not going to pick 150 miles. <laughs> like, you're not going to, you're not going to put your, you know, your uh, inspectors and investigators like halfway to freaking Connecticut to try to find, <laughs> to try to find the, the robber who stole the shit from Boston. So not only is, you know, they're making a clean getaway because... A hundred miles an hour. You can't even keep up. If you have a police car, you can't keep up. Never mind that the bat gets to fly straight as opposed to following roads and things. So kudos to the Brazilian free-tailed bat. Number one getaway car. You're going to be rich. Lots of diamonds. Lots of cute little bats. And a couple... Well, you have the vampire bat and the nectar bat, which will be the kind of the fugly minions that you keep at a distance in the downtime, I guess. But I'm feeling pretty good about my, my bat crimes. Nice. Chris, what did you uh, look at? So for my bat thing, I did bat confetti. No, just kidding. <laughs> I did not do bat That's confetti. That's a throwback. Yeah. We were talking about the snake episode before. I did snake confetti and they hated it. Also, um, technically, bat confetti would be a throw bat. I hated that. I hated the snake confetti because all you did was just like throw snakes at people. And so this better be better. No, the snakes threw themselves because they were jumping snakes or flying snakes, whatever. So if I can perfectly train bats, I don't know why, but when we came up with this question, my mind went to locusts blocking out the sun. And I was like, can I do that with bats? <laughs> I had no idea why my mind went there, but it did. So I, I went with it. So the first problem we run into is that... <laughs> just, no, no, just no more context. No more like, yeah. and here's how I brought it back to reality. No, I just went for it. I just went for it. Why not? And the first problem I, I ran into is that bats are nocturnal. So they're not actually out when the sun is out to block the sun, which is a problem. Um, so then you decide to cover an entirely different topic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you wish. So I wanted to see, like, why bats are actually no nocturnal, if I can, like, reverse that behavior and train them not to be nocturnal. Um, and the, there are two main reasons why that I could find why they're nocturnal. It was once thought that it was to like avoid competition for food from birds because birds pretty much eat the same stuff that bats do. And then more recently, it's believed that it's to avoid predatory birds of prey 
because birds eat bats. Um, so it's probably a combination of the two. It's easier to get food and it's easier to survive from predators. So in order to train them to not be nocturnal, they just need to eliminate these factors. So just provide a lot of food and get them away from predators and they'll you'll be able to train them. <laughs> I thought you were going to say, so first step, murder all the birds. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that, that you could do that. That would work. So now that they're not nocturnal and they're out during the day, can they block the sun? In order to do this, we need like a big swarm of bats. So I looked at, there's a place on Earth that we actually covered in the show before. It's called Bracken Cave. It's in Texas. I don't remember when we covered it, but I'm pretty sure we did cover it on the show before. And this cave is, it actually has the world's largest colony of bats. Um, so they're the same type of bat that Marcus was talking about, the Brazilian free-tailed bat, which is like one of the most common types of bat in North America. And people actually discovered this cave because they thought they saw smoke in the distance. So they went to like investigate the smoke thinking that something was on fire and it turned out to be bats, <laughs> not smoke. So God, that's it's like, yay, there's not a fire, but oh God. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think that's, I would say that's worse. <laughs> so they don't actually know how many bats there are in the cave because there's really no reliable way to count them. Um, but it's estimated that there are around 20 million bats in this cave. And then there's there's an animal expert from the 60s and 70s. His name is Leonard Ireland. And he described the cloud of bats as 30 miles long by 20 miles wide, which is obviously an exaggeration, but it gets the idea across of just how many bats there are. I'd also like to make the point that these bats are the Mexican free-tailed bats that are the ones that go 100 miles an hour, just for fun, in case you thought you might outrun the swarm. I, I already <laughs> said that. <laughs> I was listening, definitely. And yeah, they are called Mexican free-tailed bats also. I think we're interchanging between Brazilian free-tailed bats and Mexican free-tailed bats. They're the same thing. Yes, they are the same bat. Yeah, they're the same thing. They, there's 1,240 freaking bats, and they decided to give one bat two names. <laughs> so there are a lot of bats in this cave. Could they block out the sun? Just the number of bats doesn't really matter. It doesn't affect their ability to block out the sun. It's how close... like how close they fly to each other, how densely packed these swarms are. So I started looking into like how these bats fly in swarms. And it was actually pretty interesting. They apparently they follow like they, they go through like a pair system where there's a bat that follows a leader bat or like a group, a smaller group of bats within the large swarm. They follow one leader and there's a bunch of leaders within the swarm, but that one leader that they're following, they can detect their sonar calls or like their echolocation calls and they're able to copy their movements based off of their calls and the reaction time is about 500 milliseconds which is around the time it takes for you to blink so because they have such a fast reaction time they're able to sense these these calls they can avoid colliding with each other in the air because you imagine if there's a bunch of bats all flying together they would collide with each other but they don't because because they have this. And it, what's also interesting is that these pairs or the leaders, they can actually switch off like mid-flight. So they'll like switch, the leader will jump from bat to bat. And it doesn't necessarily have to be the bat that's in front because echolocation is like, covers a wide range. So, so they can like do different directions and stuff. It was cool. So this allows them to avoid collisions and allows them to fly closer together than they normally would be able to. But I was trying. I, I need to figure out how close that actually is. And there 
aren't really any good numbers that I could find on this, but I tried to ballpark it based on photos. So I found a bunch of photos of this Bracken cave, and based on the wingspan of the Mexican free-tailed bat, which is around a foot, I guess that there, there's about a foot between each bat, which is a lot of space between each bat. It's not gonna, you're not going to block at the sun with a foot between each bat. It's not going to happen. And like watching videos of these colonies flying out of the cave, it looks like smoke, it looks like a cloud, but it's not super dense and it doesn't look like it could block out the sun. Now, obviously I could, since I can perfectly train these bats, I could train them to fly closer to each other, but that does increase the risk of them colliding with each other. And if they collide with each other, that's not a good thing. They'll they'll probably fall to the floor. And as, as we've established, that's not a good thing for a bat. So I looked at other options. Instead of a high number of bats to achieve my goal of blocking out the sun, what if I focused on the size of the bats? If I got a bigger bat that covered more area that could block out the sun. So I looked up the largest bat by wingspan, because there's also by mass, but the wingspan is what I care about. And the biggest bat is the giant golden crowned flying fox. It's, It's called the flying fox because they're actually pretty big and their faces resemble foxes. And this specific type of bat, its wingspan can be up to five foot seven, which is huge. Wow. What? I saw some pictures. It's pretty ridiculous. Five foot seven? That's like, that's me size. Well, I'm bigger than that, but it's me size. Like, it's not far enough away from me size, yeah, and I'm happy. It's, it's pretty much person size. This This is promising for my blocking at the sun goal. I wanted to look at the structure of their wings because... It's actually, it actually is a lot different than the structure of a bird's wings. So if you look at a bird's wing, they have a fairly rigid bone structure and the muscles move the bone around a point, the point of connection of the body. So it's just like around that one point. In comparison, a bat's wing resembles more of a human hand and it just like proportionally its fingers are longer. So, so like a a bat wing, they have a thumb on the top, which is just like a little little nub on top and they actually use that to climb and then they have three fingers that are longer and then connecting those three fingers are it's like a a membrane of skin it's called a patagium i think that's how you pronounce it patagium and that connects three fingers and it also connects it to the body and this membrane of skin can stretch so it makes it makes the bat's wing more flexible than a bird's wing so the fact that they can stretch their wings and they're flexible means that they can spread, they can cover more area with their wing, which is also good for our goal of blocking out the sun. The thing is, yes, they're bigger, but they're still going to have the same problem as the smaller bats if they're flying because they can't fly close to each other. There's still going to be that gap between the bats that the sunlight can get through. But that's only if they're flying. For what I'm doing, I only need one of these giant bats and it doesn't need to be flying because it's going to be on my head. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to have a bat hat. And Oh my god. <laughs> so yeah, the bat will just be on my head. It'll spread out its wings and its wings will block the sun like a visor on a hat. And yes, the membrane on their wings is sort of translucent so it doesn't completely block at the sun. So it's not as effective as a normal hat. But it does still block out some of the sh- some of the sun. It provides some shade, and I'll have a bat hat. So that's what I would do if I could perfectly train bats. I'd train one giant bat to be my hat. 
<laughs> how do you how do you do these answers where you start with this mental image of a thousand million bats blocking out the sun? And you're like, you know what? I think I'll just settle for a shitty bat hat, <laughs> which I will readily admit isn't as good as a regular hat. A bad bat hat? <laughs> a bad bat hat. <laughs> I mean, is it better or worse than snake confetti? At least snake confetti had vision. It was a bad vision. <laughs> At least snake confetti, you left the thousands of snakes in the sky. <laughs> you could have blocked out the sky with your snake confetti. I could have. But you've given up on your dreams with the bat. I feel like I made a our snakes will blow out the sun joke, and I have brought this upon us by doing that. <laughs> oh, man. Wow. Well, at least I've stolen a thousand million diamonds to make my day better. And Ben can't get lost in Florida. <laughs> Yay. You do not want to get lost in Florida, dude. <laughs> well, you can combine your ideas. Ben, you could, the, the, the signaling bats can be also be bat hats. Oh, no, no. These, the these, these giant bats, this specific spe- species of bat doesn't have echolocation. What? <laughs> forgot to mention that i was going to mention that they don't have echolocation so they're worse at flying but it doesn't matter because he's on my head he doesn't have to fly also it's five foot seven so it can do whatever the fuck it wants i'm not gonna tell it what to do it's also fair yeah man sorry i'm I'm just looking at these pictures of this freaking thing and the problem is they do the pictures i have here there's a lot of it where the sun is actually shining through so it's going through the skin membranes you can kind of see where the skeletal fingers and the you know it looks like a lemur with like a hang glider. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Except the hang glider is made of skin and it's terrifying. <laughs> I feel like when you when you when you say the words except the hang glider is made of skin, you don't have to specify that it's terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> ben. Hmm. Are you ready for a would you rather question? Yes. What if he said no? He would, I would he would ask, ask you, me, Chris, oh. and then if you said no, uh, the podcast would immediately end. I figured you would just ask me anyway. That would be one of my options, yes. Yeah. I'd like to respect your decisions, though. Ben. Oh, I appreciate that. And since you said yes, would you rather never be allowed to drive faster than 40 miles an hour or never be allowed to drive at night? Oh. Oh, man, that's rough. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's really rough, because I... I hate, I hate when you're on, like, you know, when you're, when you're out in like, like, you know, a rural, rural area and you're on one of those, um, you know, sort of quote unquote highway roads where the limit's like 45, but there's nothing around. I feel like it could be higher and you want to drive faster. I hate that feeling already. You're doing like a cross country road trip or something. Yeah. What do we, what do what's the definition of night? After sunset? Sunset. After sunset. Okay, so it varies depending on where you are. And and, and being yep, as nighttime does. Yeah. Being in like New England when you know before daylight savings time changes, that can get it gets night pretty quickly. Sunsets at like five sometimes. Oh man. So like, okay, obviously you can plan around the no drive at night thing. But you can't do it super great. Yeah. And like if you I would say probably like sixty percent of my driving is after sunset. Like besides well the commute is the tricky bit. first off, the commute is tricky because morning commute, no problem. Evening commute varies by season. Summertime, all good. Wintertime, it's dark by five PM and up in the northeast. I guess you can't drive before sunrise either, right? Yeah. That'd be tricky. Yep. I mean, you'd probably have to adjust your shifts. Yeah, I could. I could like I'm convenient. I could work like seven to three. Yeah, so you can. You could. 
I could you do could it. adjust your shifts. So it, it would be basically that would be an annoyance. Mm-hmm. I'm going to say that for me, the annoyance of having to change my shifts and like be be very like you know, princess in a fairy tale must be home by dark would be less annoying than never being able to drive faster than forty miles per hour. Yeah, not not being able to drive faster than forty. So here's the, here's slow. the other thing. It's very slow. In my relationship, I'm the one that always drives. So that would I think I would have to take the 40 miles an hour just because I would be the one driving in the evening. So it's kind of like if you have another person, if you have an SO that would take on the driving shifts when you can't drive well. I think so I think if you are cheating, though, I don't think it's cheating. So because it kind of breaks down to this, it, it breaks down to this in my head. If you can only drive 40 miles an hour, you only drive local. You don't do any of the big drives. If you don't drive at night, then you do like your commute day trips but you don't do any you know evening night out driving and it makes travel tricky because a lot of times when you want to start a vacation you want to start like in the evening of one day and start like a whole full day the next day without having to drive that extra time if you are driving if if you're in the scenario where you can't drive at night and you're like you messed up or you made some sort of scheduling mistake and you find yourself driving at like right when uh, sunset is happening does it just mean that like your car breaks down or something you would safely pull. You have. You would safely pull over. Okay. You'd be impelled to safely pull over. And then you'd have to like walk or something, or just like sleep in your car. Yeah, you would do something. Like, I don't know if we want to go too deep into what happens if you get caught, or what if you know, what if you are. I guess you would just apply the brakes if you try to go over forty. I think just like for some reason, no matter how hard you push on the pedal, it only goes forty. It's like it's a governor. They have those for trucks and company cars. I think that only being able to drive forty is a lot easier. Is a lot more reliable because you're less likely to make mistakes. You do waste a lot of time, but you can plan around that a lot easier. It's easier to make mistakes if you can't drive at night because you'll be tempted to try to make it and then you'll run into like traffic or something and you'll get stuck in the middle of nowhere. So I think it's just more reliable doing the 40 miles per hour. I don't care about reliability. I would not be able to drive under 40 miles per hour at all times. <laughs> I'm kind of leaning towards Ben's. I'm just trying to think like any drive that's more than half an hour is doubled if you can't go more than 40. Like even in the city of Boston, where you rarely get over 40 miles an hour if you're trying, (laughs) just when you finally hit that open road and you're still going 40, it's like it's painful. It's not fast. Like I I will say as someone whose wife does not have a U.S. driver's license, I would still... And therefore can't use like the the SO drives at night workaround. I would still choose driving, not being able to drive at night over not being able to drive more than 40 miles per hour. I also hate driving at night. If we're using our personal scenarios, then I don't have a car and I don't drive anyway. So, <laughs> well, okay. That's a fair I mean, point. I guess I do drive for work occasionally, but. Well, then you want that 40 mile an hour because you can just blow the whole fucking day driving to where you're going. Well, no, because I, I, I work at night. So I have to be able to work at night. <laughs> I have to be able to drive at night. That's part of my job. Yeah, no, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go with the 40 miles an hour. I'm gonna go with the uh, driving over 40. Can't go out at night because it would drive me too crazy to to drive. A sh- do I'd rather not drive than do a shitty version of driving. And two, I don't like driving at night anyway. I actually t- like if I'm doing longer trips, I try to avoid um, driving at night. It's just a lot more. It's a lot more stressful. And, like, I do worry, like, especially if it gets, like, if you leave somewhere, like, 9 o'clock, like, after dinner, and you have a few-hour drive, 
it gets a little like it gets a little hairy around like 11 midnight where you're pretty tired like you are you know doing you're not drunk or anything but you're driving you're driving as safe as you can but you're very tired and that's just i feel like that's just as dangerous sometimes chris final verdict i'm gonna go with 40 miles an hour i don't I think it's not that big of a deal just to stay to like not travel that far away from home. I can just go to places that are closer and I need it for my job. <laughs> more of the latter. I think me and then I think me and Ben as people who drive more often. God, yeah, you're right. I can't imagine driving 40. <laughs> so I'm I'm don't drive at night. Ben, did you already say yours? I did. Yeah, I kind of said I don't it for think you. you. Okay. Did but Wait, yeah, I did. it was pretty clear what you checked, what you uh, said. I said, all right. Well, in case I had not iterated fully enough, yes, I would choose not being able to drive at night. So whether you can only drive forty miles an hour or you can't drive at night, you don't need to drive anywhere to go to www.patreon.com/absurdhypotheticals and hit that uh, become a patron button. I don't know what the button is. Um, I think it's become a patron. Whatever the button happens to say on it, there is a button at that URL that you can click. And what it'll do is it'll take $1 out of your account. $1. Just one, just one little dollar. 100 cents sounds like a lot. Pennies are worthless, though. So if you, it's basically nothing. $1 goes to us. And what goes to you is, one, our love and thanks and all the things. And two... You get access to our special behind-the-scenes episodes where we talk about making the show. We go over the previous month's questions. We talk about, you know, what's next for the show. A little laid-back chit-chat. We have a a more special one coming up now where for our 100th episode, we have been soliciting questions. We are going to do 100 hypothetical questions in 100 minutes. And on our next behind the scenes, which is coming out this Friday, Chris, yep. or is it going to be That's this Friday? Yeah, coming out this coming out this Friday, we're going to do a dry run to see if our idea is even going to work in the first place. Now that we've asked all the questions, <laughs> we're going to do like a little mini hundred episode thing. Yeah, we have we have done um, we have committed to this, gone through all the things, but we have not actually practice or try to see if it's a viable idea so if you want to potentially watch us crash and burn and have an existential crisis over our hundredth episode we're gonna need your dollar first <laughs> <laughs> so if we come back next week and we have suddenly changed our plans for the hundredth episode you want to find out why that was <laughs> again cough up put that playing our way we are at this point more than likely not able to take any more listener questions but if you have a good one that you want to shoot in and see if it gets in last minute please do and if it's a good hypothetical question we might just do it on a regular episode so don't stop don't say oh i didn't make it in time i can't send my question just get it into us yeah we'll always take questions we will always take questions we love to get them so even if it doesn't make the 100th episode we will try and make it happen on a main episode so you still get maximum value so do all those things and then join us next week where we answer the following question. What if we had two sons? S-U-N-S sons, not like <laughs> boys. I'm so sad you clarify <laughs> that before I can make a joke about it. 